Good morning, my name is Kyle, and I am a pastor here, and it's my privilege to be able to teach on almost a weekly basis. We have time to open up God's Word together and to look at it. If you were just here uh, visiting, we are so glad you're here. If you're new to Christianity, um, uh, we are glad you're here, and we hope that you can explore the claims of Christianity and what Christianity is all about. Uh, One of the best ways to do that is actually to take a Bible and to read it. If you don't have a Bible right now, there are Bibles on the round tables. You can get up and get one. It's totally fine. That's um, uh, fine to do right now. If you're wondering where 1 John is, which we're going through, it's um, the pages are there for you in, in the bulletin. Well, the second half of the first chapter of 1 John deals with the relationship that a Christian has to sin. And John says that rather than denying our sin, a Christian is one who confesses their sin. That they're not deluded about their sin. He says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And in verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar. I wonder how that sits with you. That John says that all of us, Christian or not, we have sin remaining in our lives. That none of us are perfect, that none of us have arrived. And so the question is, is how do you respond to that? One of the most prominent motifs in all of literature is the motif of the journey home. You can see it all over the place. Uh, Wizard of Oz, E.T., You can think about the field of dreams of the Lion King. All these have the motif of the journey home. And I I suppose the reason that that is so prominent is because it's so readily relatable to us as humans. See, we're all on a journey, and we're all on a journey home. Home is that place of peace, of comfort, of of being comfortable in your own skin and where you are, of joy and happiness, and we are all on that journey. The oldest, perhaps, at least the most famous story of the journey home comes from Homer's Odyssey. You may remember the story from, I don't know, high school literature, those of you who paid attention, unlike me. But the story is about Odysseus, or Ulysses, the Latin name, who's the king of Greece. After fighting in the Trojan War, he has to travel back to Ithaca. And there, uh, on the way back, it's a journey that takes him 10 years, and it is fraught with many dangers, toils, and snares. As he's going back, he, he has to pass the song of the sirens who lure sailors off their path and onto the rocky shores of the island. After he makes it past the sirens, he has to get past the Straits of Messina. Now, the Strait of Messina is very tumultuous because there are dangers on either side. On the one side, there is Scylla, the six-headed monster who could devour the sailors. 
On the other side, there's Kribis, the whirlpool that can take boats wholesale. And, and so anyone who is trying to navigate that, Ulysses, as he tries to navigate that, he has to figure out a way to go between these two, the dangers that are on either side. Well, Christians, we are on a journey, a journey home. The battle has been won. The battle has been won, but we have to make it back. And and after we have gotten past the siren song of deceiving ourselves into thinking that we have no sin, then we have to go through another tumultuous place where there is danger on either side. On the one side, there is this six-headed monster of defeat. That recognizing that you have the reality of sin in your own life means that leads you to think that you are just defeated. On the other side, there is the whirlpool of complacency. That the reality of remaining sin in your life leads you to be complacent. And this is a, str- this is a struggle that we all feel. Some of you in this room, you feel the temptation to complacency. That is that you think because there is remaining sin in our lives, then that means that we just are comfortable with it. God forgives, I sin, that's just how things go. And some of us have even adopted a theology that reinforces this thinking. Christians aren't perfect, they're just forgiven. Well, that's right, Christians aren't perfect. And John has just said, to think that you are is to delude yourself. But if you take that to mean that you can be complacent with where you are, John says, oh no. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Great Omission, says that the governing assumption today amongst professing American Christians is that we can be Christians forever and never become disciples. And some of you have become Christians and you think you can be a Christian without becoming a disciple, without leaving everything and following Jesus. You have fallen off of one side. But there's another side, and there are others of you, and that side is the side of defeat. You are not complacent about your sin. It actually grieves you deeply, but you just feel defeated by it. And you come in here this morning, and you are full of depression and low-grade anxiety, cynicism, and despair that comes from seeing the sin that remains in your life. So here's the question this morning that I want to ask you. Which one of those dangers are you most likely to fall in this morning? Or is it both? Well, whichever one, the message of 1 John 2, 1 and 2, is for you.
and for me. And we need to hear it. So let me pray. God, I do pray that this message this morning, that you would use it to lead us home. That you would come and be with us, present in the boat, and guide us safely to the other side. In Jesus' name and by the power of the Spirit, amen. Well, at the beginning of chapter 2, John writes, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Now, that's astounding. It's astounding that on the heels of saying that a Christian is one who cannot deny their sin, John goes on to say that I am writing to you that you may not sin. You see, John is a pastor, And as a pastor, he cares about his flock, and he cares that they do not sin. John is a parent, and as any loving parent knows, they do not want to see their children make decisions that are harmful and destructive to them. And so he says, I am writing these things to you, my dear children, that you may not sin. And so, to the defeated Christian this morning, this is a message of hope. Because it means that change is possible. That you can change. In fact, John's saying, I wouldn't even be writing if you couldn't change. The very fact that I'm writing means that you can change, that change is possible. And it's possible not because you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not possible not because here are seven steps to make it through. It's possible because you are loved. My little children. It's a term of affection endearment. He's saying, you are loved. You are loved, and there is power in that. You are loved by me. But more importantly, you are loved by God. He'll go on in chapter 3, behold what manner, see what kind of love the Father has bestowed upon us, has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. And such we are. You are a child of God. You know, children who are well-loved by their parents and who know that they're well-loved by their parents tend to turn out like their parents. They tend to take on a lot of the traits that their parents actually teach them. Christian, you are well-loved. You are well-loved. You are a son or a daughter of God. And there is power in that. There is power and potential for change. And so let me ask you this morning, do you want to change? What do you want to change? What about your life do you want to change? There is potential for change. You say, well, I want these things about my life to change. Let me ask you, are these things circumstances? Because I'm not talking about circumstances. I'm not talking about the better job or the better relationship. I'm not talking about any of that. What I am, I'm not talking about the better bill of health. I'm talking about how we respond to those circumstances. I'm talking about contentment through any circumstance. I'm talking about joy in the midst of sorrow. I'm talking about dealing with the discontent. Dealing with the lack of self-control. Dealing with the unhealthy ways in which we engage in relationships. The passive aggression. 
the cowardice and the fear that doesn't allow us to enter into hard and sticky situations, that we overlook them. I'm talking about the ways in which we use our bodies and treat our bodies and the bodies of others. I'm talking about the anger that resides deep within and the inability to forgive. I'm, I'm talking about the incessant insecurity that makes you always defend yourself, makes me always defend myself in front of others. I'm talking about those things. There is possibility for change. You are well-loved. To the defeated Christian, this is a message of hope. But it's not just a message of hope for the defeated Christian. To the complacent Christian, this is a corrective. John says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. See, he's reminding the complacent Christian that sin is not God's intention for your life. That sin is not the way things are supposed to be. That God does not want you to live in sin. That God did not send his son into the world to die for you so that you might remain in sin. God did not adopt you into his family so that you could willingly choose to live like a slave. He did not. That God's intention for your life is actually that you would be like him. And that a life that is complacent with sin cannot be called Christian. See, do you think that remaining, remaining sin in you means that you get to remain in sin? It does not. And some of you in this morning, this, here this morning, that is where you were at. There are places in your life and there are sins in your life and they do not even bother you anymore. You've been living in them so long and you've become complacent, immune even. When I was in high school, I had a friend, we'll call him Jimmy. Jimmy used to ride his old Bronco to school every morning. And he would park there in the parking lot. Uh, he would get there quite early. Jimmy hated to roll up the windows. He never rolled up the windows. And he would listen to uh, a radio program uh, there for 15 minutes or so before class started. Sometimes he would make it to uh, homeroom. Sometimes he wouldn't. But uh, he would go in. And he also often didn't lock his, his doors. One day we're out in the parking lot. And as we're there, another friend comes up. And it's duck hunting season. You're like, what is that? Just go with me here. Memphis, Tennessee, duck hunting season, and one of, the, uh, one of the, my friends that morning had just been duck hunting. Memphis, Tennessee, go with it. And as he had just been duck hunting, he says, I've got ducks in the back of, in the back of my car. And we're like, oh, wow. We're high school boys, so we're like, what do we do with these? Um, so a couple we stuffed into somebody's backpack, so that when they got in home room or computer class and unzipped them, they had a couple heads looking up at them. Uh, we didn't know what to do with the other, but you know, we noticed that that morning, Jimmy, he had gone to home room, and his doors were unlocked. So, we schemed a plan. We put one of those ducks in Jimmy's Bronco. 
Well, the next day, we didn't hear anything from Jimmy. Kind of waiting. Why? The day after that, we didn't hear anything. The day after that, we didn't hear anything. And then we just kind of forgot about it a little bit until we were walking by a couple weeks later. Remember, this is September in Memphis. It is hot, triple digits. And we smelled something so horrid coming from that Bronco where he just sat every morning for 15 minutes listening to the radio. It smelled like a rotting carcass. It was a rotting carcass. So we said to him finally, because it was just too much, and we thought this has gone too far, we said, Jimmy, we've been walking by your car, and it smells really bad. What's, what's going on there? And he goes, oh, yeah, totally. Two nights ago, my dad and I, we, we cleaned it out. We found this old rotten banana peel in the glove box. <laughs> old rotten banana peel, that will stink up your car. Um, yeah, but what about the rotting carcass under your seat? He had no idea. And so finally we said, you might want to check under your seat. And there was the dove that had been there for two weeks under his seat. You know, he had sat there for two weeks, 15 minutes every day with the windows rolled up, with the windows rolled up, with a dead carcass in his car, and he had become totally immune to it. What dead carcasses are lying in your life that you've become totally immune to? What rotting smell of sin is in your life that you have become totally immune to? Because you don't even know anymore. You don't even recognize the smell. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That if anyone wants to follow Jesus, that they actually have to deny themselves. That they can't be complacent with sin. So my question for you is, why this morning do some of you think that you can be complacent with sin and say that you have a relationship with God? Why do you think that you can live with those animals in your trunk and think it's okay? Why do you think that you can gain your life without losing it? I'm talking about the coping mechanisms. I'm talking about the destructive relational patterns. I'm talking about the unhealthy ways in which you deal with conflict or don't. I'm talking about the addictions. I'm talking about giving up on your spouse. I'm talking about giving up on your child. I'm talking about these things. For for the person who's become complacent with sin, John says, I am writing that you may not sin. Sin is not the will of God for your life. But I realize some of you aren't there. Some of you feel defeated. You are very sensitive to the carcasses in your life. And for you, he says, I'm writing that you may not sin. And there's a possibility for change. There is potential. And there's also provision. 
Look, John goes on, but if anyone does sin, but if anyone does sin, and John knows that we will sin, he assumes that we will sin. To, not, to think that you won't sin is, is to delude yourself. But if anyone does sin, he says, we have an advocate with the Father. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. An advocate is someone who vouches on your behalf. An advocate is someone who goes to someone else on your behalf and says, I will cover them. If the issue is that your character is in question, then the person puts their reputation on the line for you. If, it's, uh, uh, if the question is your, about your financial stability, then the person says, I will put my assets down as collateral for you. And John says that we have an advocate with the Father. That in the court of law, if you will, it's a courtroom metaphor, that in the court of law, we have someone who will vouch for us, who will intercede for us. You know, life can feel like one big courtroom, can't it? There's the court of public opinion that we see everywhere. We see it uh, at our annual reviews. We see it when the professor gives us back a paper. We enter the court of opinion, of opinion when we go to pick up our kids from school or when it's time to pick up your kids from school and you don't have them. We enter the court of opinion when we look in the mirror or we look in the magazine covers. The court of opinion is, public opinion is everywhere. There's that court and then there's the court of your own opinion, your own standards and the ways in which you don't meet them, but you're always trying to. There's that court. And then there's the court of divine opinion. And how do we fare there? And what do you do when you don't measure up? What do I do when I don't measure up? Well, I think there are several things that we can do to kind of prop ourselves up. One, one thing that we often tend to do is we compare ourselves to others as if being better than others somehow means that we meet the standard. Or we start thinking about all the good things that we have done and how we're a pretty good person as if the good things we do cancel out the bad things we do. What do we do? We don't measure up. We need an advocate. We need an advocate. We have an advocate. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Jesus is our advocate. And there are two things that make him particularly equipped for this task. The first thing that we find is that Jesus is righteous. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus, the righteous, or the righteous one at the end of verse 1. You see, Jesus, his reputation is impeccable, and he can put that on the line. Jesus, his life is sinless. He who knew no sin. And so when he goes to the Father, he goes to the Father meeting the Father's standard. I mean, think about it. If you have someone write a recommendation for you or being an advocate for you, you don't want someone that has a bad reputation, do you? And if you find out that they do, then you're like, please don't write that recommendation, right? You get a little worried. Uh, 
you want someone who, who has met the standards of the person that you're writing to. If you are a student and you are trying to get in with a gra- to a graduate school and you write to a professor, you want a professor who you believe has met the standards of that other professor, you see? And Jesus, he has met the standards. He is the righteous one because he is God who is righteous. And he advocates on your behalf. And his account, it is full. And he puts his life down as collateral for yours. But it's not just that Jesus is righteous. It is also that Jesus is a reconciling sacrifice. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Verse 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, propitiation is actually translated from a Greek word, hilasterion. Really helpful translation, right? Everyone knows what a propitiation was. That makes it so clear. Thank you, translators. I am so glad that you did that, making it clear, because I use the word propitiation every day. What is a propitiation? Well, we've moved out of the law court and into the temple. And the metaphor here is of a sacrifice that brings reconciliation or atonement, atonement. We read about it early in Leviticus. A propitiation is like a Gore-Tex jacket. Uh, many of you know that I, some of you don't. This is going to be a revelation. I, I ride a motorcycle to work every day. That's how I get to work. And when we used to live in England, I got to work uh, almost the same way. I mean, it was pretty much the same thing, except I didn't have a motor. And so I rode a bicycle to work every day. And, uh, and England's very similar to Santa Barbara, too, um, except for this one thing. They had this thing, the weather was a little different. And they had this thing, it, it would, it, I know it's going to be strange, but it was water that fell from the sky. And what do they call it? Rain. They called it rain. Maybe you have read about it or heard about it. And it rained in England a lot. I kid you not. It rained all the time. And, and so, uh, you know, uh, something else about England that you need to know that's a little different is... Um, it's a little more formal than Santa Barbara, especially in a university context. And so I wore a blazer to work every day. If you don't know what a blazer is, a blazer is a jacket that... I'm kidding. Come on. Uh, so I, there I am with my blazer and my chinos, and I'm having to go to work every day and ride through the rain. What do you do? Well, Pam and I, we purchased some really, really good Gore-Tex rain gear. So, a couple times a month, or several times a month, I would put on my Gore-Tex jacket over my blazer and zip it up. I would put on my Gore-Tex pants over my chinos, and I would ride in in the pouring rain. And when I got to the library, I was soaked. I mean, I was totally soaked. There was, there was water dripping off every part of me. But I would get in the lobby, and I would unzip the jacket and take it off. I would take off the Gore-Tex pants, and then I would be dry, completely dry, amazingly dry. Like, I didn't even go through the rain, and yet I went through the rain. Jesus, he is like a Gore-Tex jacket. In union with Christ, you zip him up. And when you stand before the reign of God's righteous judgment... 
Well, it's like you didn't even go through the judgment. And yet you went through the judgment. But it's like you didn't go through the judgment. And yet you went through the judgment. In him, you went through the judgment. And he took it all for you. That's what propitiation means. You say to yourself, well, that doesn't make any sense. I don't believe that Jesus has to shield me from the righteous wrath of God. I think that God can just automatically forgive and forget because he's loving. That's what he does. My cousins, when I was in second grade, moved to Pocahontas, Arkansas. It's okay if you don't know. And I used to go visit them a couple times a year. And the way that I would get to there was I would, um, I would get in an 18-wheeler full of furniture, and I would go up to Pocahontas, Arkansas, but I would usually go through Jonesboro, Arkansas. I would go that direction that way because my father and my uncle were in the furniture business together, and so I would just hitch a ride. So I'm usually doing a layover in Jonesboro where we had a store, and that's all I knew about Jonesboro until 1998. In 1998, Mitchell Johnson and Andrew Golden were two students who went to middle school together. They rode the bus together, and one day, they shot four of their classmates together and their teacher and killed them. Ten others were injured that day. They had a memorial service a night or two later, and this is the Bible Belt. One writer, Paul Greensburg, he wrote an op-ed coming out of that tragedy saying, what is missing, entitled, What is Missing in Jonesboro? I want you to listen to what he said. He said this, commenting on the memorial service. Yes, there were words of comfort Tuesday night, words of mercy and grace and forgiveness, but I don't recall hearing anything about justice. And what meaning can mercy and grace and forgiveness have if they are separated from justice? You know, he's right. What meaning can mercy and grace and forgiveness have if they are separated from justice? I think many Christians think that forgiveness is an automatic thing where you forgive and forget. That is not Christian forgiveness, that is paltry forgiveness, that is a pagan understanding. No, a Christian understands that forgiveness has to be tethered to justice, that wrongs have to be righted. And God, he rights the wrongs in the cross of Jesus Christ. Their justice and mercy and forgiveness kiss And so, we have an advocate. And Jesus' advocacy is his continual application of his reconciling sacrifice to you. Every sin that you have ever committed, and every sin that you ever will commit, he took the punishment for you. So maybe you're here this morning and you were defeated by your sin. 
you're depressed, and it is a weight that bears down on you. You could see it in your face, and you can see it in your shoulders. It is physically affecting you. Every sin that you have ever committed, and every sin that you ever will commit, He took it. He is your Gore-Tex jacket. You are free. Hark, the voice of love and mercy sounds aloud from Calvary. See, it rends the rocks asunder, shakes the earth, unveils the sky. It is finished. It is finished. Hear the dying Savior cry. It is finished. You are free. He has taken your penalty. So you can lift your head, and you can lift your eyes, and you can lift your shoulders, and you can live not in a state of defeat because he was victorious over the punishment for your sin there on Calvary. Are you defeated this morning by your sin? Don't bear the burden. Trust in him. Look to him. But maybe you're here and you're complacent about your sin. If you were here this morning and you were complacent about your sin, I have this message for you. Every sin, every sin that you have ever committed and every sin that you ever will commit, every sin, Jesus takes the punishment. And so you cannot view your sin lightly thinking that somehow it's not that big of a deal and that justice does not need to be satisfied. You who think of sin but lightly or suppose the evil great here at the cross may view its nature rightly, here its guilt may estimate. You may get off, but he did not. He did not. We have an advocate. He is the propitiation for our sins. But John goes on to say, not only for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. It's really astonishing if you think about it. Not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. It's astonishing because the world is so big. We heard the text read earlier. And in that text... We heard this astonishing claim that the, that the priest, he would go over the, the goat and he would lay his hands on the goat and he would confess the sins of the people. And there, this, the goat was sent out to the wilderness and then another one was slaughtered to make atonement, a reconciling sacrifice for whom? For all Israel. And that's amazing. That all Israel could be atoned for in that sacrifice. That is amazing. But nobody would have conceived that this sacrifice was not simply for all Israel. It was for the sins of the whole world. It's astonishing because the world is so big. It's astonishing because the world is so bad. You see, the world in John is a place and a system that though it belongs to God, 
though it is his by right of creation, is also in rebellion against God. Has committed cosmic mutiny, has tried to push God out of the picture. And when the world got the chance, the world killed God. That's the world. And that's the world that Jesus came to save. For God so loved the world, the world, that world, that he sent his only begotten son. Do you know what a zero-sum game is or an all-sum game? Zero-sum game is a situation in which each participant's gain is another's loss. And each gain or loss is exactly balanced by the losses or gains by other participants. Let me give you an example that will help you understand what a zero-sum game is. had some friends, they were newlyweds, and uh, they were driving down the 101. As they're heading down the 101, they decide, you know, they're newlyweds, and they want to save some money, and there's a burrito shop. They had heard that these burritos are really big, so they decide to split the burrito. They split the burrito, they get back in the car, and they're eating the burrito. Of course, they don't cut it down the center. They're just supposed to know when halfway is. And as um, the guy is sitting there driving and eating, all of a sudden, the girl, uh, the, his wife, his new young wife, she, um, she gets a little tenacious. She freaks out because she's like, you're eating my part of the burrito. Uh, he crossed the line, right? And, and guess what? He won. His gain is her loss. There's no more burrito to be had. You see, as much as he went over that line, he got and she didn't get. It is a all-sum or zero-sum gain. You know, a lot of us, we view, we view Jesus like that. Like it's a zero-sum game. Like somehow, if we share the blessing, we'll lose some of the blessing. Like, like somehow, if God loves them, it means he doesn't love us. And so, and so we hoard the blessing. It comes out in our prayers and the things that we focus on. It comes out in how we structure the church. We think, well, you know, if more new people come in, then that's going to take attention away from me. If we have to always be translating for the unbeliever, then what am I going to get out of it? This is how it comes out. It comes out in the way that we think about other denominations and whether we're able to learn from them. Like somehow, if you were to learn from someone else in another denomination, you might be scared that, hey, God is revealing something over there that he's not revealing here. It's, it's, it's that jealousy that happens when other churches who are not of your theological persuasion are growing and you're not. And you think, wait, if the blessing's going there, then it's not going here. And there's this jealousy that happens because we're viewing Jesus like it's a zero-sum game. Jesus is not a zero-sum game. Jesus is an infinite-sum game. He is infinite. And yes, he died for our sins, particularly, definitively, with the, attention, with the intention to rescue us personally and for the whole world. 
See, this forbids any arrogance that we alone are the objects of God's concern. It forbids any arrogance of thinking that that somehow, uh, that somehow to think that God could love or reveal himself in ways outside the church and outside of, uh, of Christianity that he doesn't inside, that that's a threat. No. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For God so loved the world, the world that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And so some of us here, we are complacent with sin, and that complacency leads us to think that sin is just not that big a deal, and so the world, they really don't need a savior. And so we don't tell the world. And some of us in here, we're so defeated by sin that we think, what good does it do anyway, the message that I have? It's really not that powerful. And so we don't tell the world. But the gospel, it is the power of salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is the power of salvation for the world, the world which is under the wrath of God because of sin. And so we must go and tell So we must go and tell and look and love and share because Jesus is for the world. God, I pray that by understanding the cross, those of us here who have been defeated by sin would be encouraged those of us here who are complacent with sin would be encouraged and that these things which we have heard, that they might be so that we would not sin. Use the rest of the service and your word through it to wean us away from sin and into your loving arms. In Jesus' name. Amen.